is Monday, May 11th, 2020. I'm Kevin Williams. This is the LDS Live podcast. Roseanne Thomas is my guest today. No, not Roseanne Barr, the comedian or the person who hosted the show, Roseanne. No, this is Roseanne Thomas. How are you, Roseanne? Very good. Thank you. And you, Kevin? I'm fine. Uh, it's great to be up here. I do not like the weather of Montana, but that's another story. It's very inconsistent up here, isn't it? Seasonal. Yeah. I don't know. It, it, the, the weather down in Salt Lake is much more consistent, but we'll get our minds off the weather and talk about the Civil War. Uh, Roseanne wrote a book called Martha's Cross, and it's dedicated to your mother, correct? That is right. And if I remember in the book, uh, I should have read this before I got on the podcast. I did read it, but I should have, I had some things that I needed to read again. But um, this is your great grandmother's experience or your, yeah, your great grandmother's experience, correct? Yes, that's correct. Oh, good. At least I remembered something. Okay. And uh, so what inspired you to write this book? Uh, by the way, let's get into what the book is about. The book is about your great-grandmother's perspective on the Civil War. And in the book, it starts out where you are, or it starts uh, where your mother is, or your great-grandmother is at the cemetery telling your mother that, we have fences, and if I understand the story correctly, your mother asked, why can't I tear this down? And your grandmother asked, why can't I tear this down? And she said that we don't let colored people here. Uh, get into that a little bit, because I have a question about that later. Well, when I was a child, I went to the cemetery with my mother, where my great-grandparents are buried. She was there, my mother was there as a child when her grandfather was buried. And she told me the story that as a child attending the, the uh, funeral service, that uh, she noticed a group of colored or black Americans coming up to the fence, but would not come into the cemetery. And she asked her mother, which would be my grandmother, why they couldn't come. And the reply was, it's not allowed. This, I think, was for the safety of the black and the whites, not to mingle together. But the black community had a high respect for my grandfather, and that's why they wanted to attend the service. Very impressionable I was when I heard the story. It has been with me all these years. I wanted to relate that, along with the other genealogical historical facts I found about my family to my children. So that was the beginning of the story. And from what I have learned through research, I wanted to share the story. Yeah, do you think uh, your grandmother wished she would have gone against the grain? Do you think uh, she wanted to go against the grain, but she didn't because of fear? Because I could understand. Uh, do, do you think other people would have gone against the grain back then? Uh, what, what's your take? I think it depends on the individual, just like it would be today or any other time. I don't think she wanted to go against the grain for the safety of everyone involved. Um, she didn't want to put uh, anyone in a compromised situation where it could be misread. Uh, so she, 
they certainly spoke to each other. They worked together as sharecroppers. Oftentimes people think it was only the blacks that were sharecroppers. That wasn't true. Um, and I think it was because of respect that they wanted to make sure that no one misunderstood the situation. There were certain rules that needed to be followed in the culture, and they were just following them to ensure everyone's safety. Okay, explain what sharecropping is. Uh, that's a perfect bridge segue into my next question here. Explain uh, what sharecropping is, because I had heard the term in school, but I didn't exactly understand what it was. And then we'll get into some other questions. Well, basically it was that after the Civil War, people who had been slaves and had a place to live on their master's plantation or land, still wanted to remain there. So they were given an option to share part of their crops as rent by paying some of their crops as rent to their old master. So that's where the term sharecropping came about. And depending on the master or the old master or the landowner at this point, how many crops were required of them. Sometimes it was very um, amenable and uh, other times it was abusive, depending again on the relationship that they had with, with the landowner. Yeah. Um, what would happen if the fixed amount of crops did not come through just because of weather conditions or other things that could happen during farming? Would they automatically get kicked off the land or did they drop a new contract or what? Well, a new contract or the continuation of the contract would generally continue because the landowners needed king cotton produced and they needed tobacco and other crops produced. So you wouldn't want to fire someone or send some away, someone away and get another group of people in there uh, when it wasn't really necessary. Where would you get more employees, basically? So it was better advantage for everyone to continue, how long no matter did what the crops were. How long did sharecropping go on uh, after the oh. Civil War? Uh, in bits and pieces, it continued until, I would think, the 50s, the 1950s. Oh, Okay. Now, uh, one thing that you mentioned in the book, we'll just keep going down this rabbit hole here since we're here. Uh, one thing you mentioned in the book was the skellywags, which were those who were taking advantage of, you know, Southerners basically taking advantage of each other because what was happening is the Northerners would come down and the Southerners would work with the Northerners trying to take advantage of other Southerners. And you said that uh, because of that, the rich, well, you, you told me off the podcast, the rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, if I may read a little bit from the book, might explain yeah, this a little bit better, uh, which says the new arrivals were corrupt for profit, meaning uh, the men from the north of the carpetbaggers. And the men who folks were calling scallywags 
who were Southerners, were no better, worse perhaps. They were Southerners loyal to the North who had avoided serving during the war, but some were now joining with the forces from the North with small town farmers and merchants to achieve their ends. They wanted to be the top dogs in town, all on account that they'd been too poor or too stupid to have any money before. The misdeeds at the hands of the Southern Scalawags far outnumbered those against the men who carry carpet bags from the North. Okay. Scalawags is an interesting term. I'm sorry. Scalawags is an interesting term, which was taken from uh, feeding the hogs in the South. So these men were so looked down upon, they were regarded as just rooting hogs trying to get the better of their fellow um, Southern folks. So it was a very derogatory term. Mm-hmm. How did the word carpetbagger get its name? Oh, well, that was because the suitcases or the baggage that men from the North brought their personal belongings in were generally made of carpet, which I thought was an interesting scenario. So that's where that term came from. Yeah. And do you think that's why we have, there was so much segregation in the South after it was kind of a reaction instead of an action. The South was uh, pretty pissed off. And basically saying, Northerners, you're not telling us what to do. We're making our own rules. Do you think that's probably sparked a lot of the segregation and all the other problems that came during the South for the next hundred years or so after the Civil War? Oh, I think it has a great deal to do with it. I wouldn't say it's 100%, but it certainly was the majority of the problem. Um, No one likes to be moved upon to do things that they were not accustomed to. Uh, there was never really a strong political party one way or the other, I believe, until the North came down and started promising the freemen, which were the free slaves, certain promises that they were not going to keep. And I think that really was the problem. Yeah, I find it interesting that you did mention the word Republican in there in your book, um, because a lot of people say, oh, the Republicans were the ones that were against slavery. And then here they were giving these promises not to get too political, but I found that noteworthy. Um, what do you think kept your mother or uh, your grandmother going? Uh, because I think it would be very tempting to spend every waking moment thinking about is my husband going to survive this war? What do you think kept her going? Because that would be very difficult, I think, to know that a loved one, especially a sibling, uh, your husband, wife, is at war. And it would be very tempting not to spend every moment thinking about that person, don't you think? Oh, I imagine they were very concerned. Everyone was concerned. Uh, The war took its toll on the North and the South. Uh, This is a story about families and this particular family. I'm sure there was issues, and that's brought out in the communications that were related in the book, Miss Martha's Cross. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. How did they get through day by day? I think a lot was just keep on keeping on. We had chores to do. We had children to take care of. You have to keep moving through life just as we do today. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a good, good, good point. Uh, it's not like the pandemic where we can shut down the whole economy, is it? Um, anyway, um, do you think that your mother had, or your grandmother had a lot of fear when opening that first letter in chapter one of your book where she was reluctant to read it? And I, th- I think, uh, if I remember correctly in chapter one, didn't somebody else read it other than your mother? I can't remember. I, it seems like I think someone else read the letter and everybody was relieved to find her or to find your great grandfather alive. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the reluctance was the postmark that it came from St. Louis instead yeah. of in the South or in the East or the New England area. Uh, why did it come from St. Louis? There was no fighting there. So she was at a mist. And also, depending on the person, again, some people like to ignore problems, run away from problems, or let's face it. I think she was very uh, reluctant to open that letter. She was also a bit superstitious. It's raining. It's bad weather. It came from a location I don't recognize. What will this hold for my family? And you are correct. Uh, She handed the letter over to her daughter, Martha, who was a teenager that time and literate, and she read the letter. Yeah, I'll bet. uh, Yeah, it was obviously relieved. Now, I I do want to get into the superstition, uh, the buzzards. I guess, yeah, if one buzzard was flying over or if one buzzard was over your, your house or something and did not fly, it meant, it meant misery. I saw the irony in that superstition later on in the book when the letter stated that, uh, I think that was the letter that your father was in prison or, uh, yeah, he joined the volunteers, wasn't it? Wasn't that letter, uh, wasn't that around the time that you mentioned the superstitions? Yes. um, The superstition goes like this. Um, If you see a buzzard, you have to watch him until he flaps his wings or you will have bad luck all day. If you see two, it'll be good luck. Three is for a letter and it continues on. So when later on in the book, the daughter sees three buzzards flying she knows a letter is there. The mother had seen only one buzzard that did not flap her wings, so she knew that the letter contained something bad. And what it was, as far as bad news was concerned, was the husband was not coming home from the Civil War. Uh, was gone another two years. So uh, they really believed, uh, even though in part, they were logical. They were also superstitious. And I think that gradually went away as people through the years became more aware of science and facts and communicated more. But uh, in the day, there was some superstition, yes. 
Now, did, was it true that geese were really flying in a W during the Civil War? Or was that just a figure of speech or what? That, again, was a superstition. Okay. Geese generally fly in a V. Yeah. But when they change formation, they sometimes seem to be in a W pattern, and then they'll go back to a V. If you'll watch the geese, that's kind of what they do. But there again, superstition was, you see geese in a W, oh, it's wartime, devastation. If they're in a V, peace and victory. Okay. Um, how much of a, of a distaste did your great-grandfather have for war when he came back? He obviously had a big distaste. And what was he referring to when he said war did very cruel things to mankind? You know, he had seen uh, friends killed. He'd seen hunger and disease. He'd been in two prisoners of war camps. Yes, it was cruel to him. But he also knew that it was good to have a unity of the nation. And when he was a POW, he made a statement to that regard, that he was glad that the country would be unified. It was just a pity that it had to come about, as we, I think, all agree, through so much bloodshed. Do you think the country was really unified after the war, though, because it Sounds like, from my history of reading about after the Civil War in your book, sounds like the country was awfully divided after the war, possibly even more so than before. Well, legally it was more united. The laws were more firm. It was more of a nation and versus being uh, dominated by states. So in that regard, I think it was. Uh, opinions? You may be right. There was diversity of opinions in different regions of the country. So I wouldn't necessarily say it was more divided before or after the war, war uh, but it certainly was more united legally. Interesting. Yeah, I'm just thinking of all the carpetbaggers and all the segregation. It just seemed like the North and South were awfully divided after that. Well, yes, they were, but I think also they were divided before that. And um, I am not an expert on the Civil War, but that's my opinion. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what do you think made your family move to, um, to La La oh, Lauderdale County? Uh, was it fear of the Yankees coming? Or what do you think brought that on? Well, I think in part they moved to Lauderdale County to be back where they originally had started. Both of these parents of Martha's had been born and grew up there. Then they moved away to another county. And the reason why I think they decided to go back at the beginning of the war was to be near the grandparents for the safety and companionship of the extended family yeah and it's it seems like uh, everybody is, was okay with that uh, decision um so let's go back to the letter that your mother your great-grandmother received about how your 
great-grandfather joined the volunteers and there was a week left during the war. Do you think your grandfather was ever, or your great-grandfather was ever at peace with that decision or not? Or do you think he regretted it very deeply after some years went by? He made that decision because all around him was death. People were dying in that prisoner of war camp. It was worse than the one in Andersonville in Georgia, this one that he was in uh, that held the Confederate prisoners in Chicago. And smallpox was so rampant, he was afraid for his life. No one knew the war would be over in a few weeks. And uh, when he was offered the opportunity to join the U.S. six volunteers and serve in the Dakota Territory, he felt that was an option to keep him alive so that he could return to his family. Did he regret it? Uh, I don't think he regretted saving his life. Uh, Did he regret that he was ostracized? as being a traitor when he returned to Mississippi, yes. So I'm sure he had mixed feelings. I'm sure the entire family had mixed feelings. Yeah. By the way, uh, I want to get into that topic. Your family was definitely ostracized. At the very end of the book, you did mention, well, you mentioned a few times at the very end, well, let's get to uh, your cousin or your, I don't know what you call it, one of your distant relatives, uh, Cora wrote your family or your uh, great grandmother and said, why don't you stay at our house? You're basically a lost soul and just went on. And then one time right before your great grandfather moved into the poor house, which we'll get there in a few minutes, somebody, a woman came and said, you reap what you sow. Basically, how dare you with your husband? This was at the time that your great grandfather went blind. Do you think this woman who was chastising your mother was taking it out on your family that he went to join the volunteers or in some cases, what was referred to in your book as the Yankees? Uh, if I re- understand your, que- your question correctly, Kevin, it was how did people interact with this feeling that he was a traitor and how did they react to it? There certainly was some support for the family, and this is brought out uh, in the book. There was Absolutely, also some people with the Pickards, yes. yeah, who were totally against them thinking, oh, why have you been a traitor? You should have died in the prison camp. You know, um, I think we need to look at the individual circumstance and not make judgments of our ancestors. Each of our ancestors have lived a full life, whether we agree with it or not, it's our heritage. So I think in looking back at our ancestors, we can get a good feeling of where we came from, attitudes that help formulate our attitudes and make history as well. Yeah, I was just wondering if uh, you, you wrote about that scene with the woman basically lecturing your mom about, or not your mom, your great grandmother about, you know, your husband, this, 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 
I just wonder if you felt when you were doing your researching if she was angry at your father. You know, this is the point where he went blind, which we'll talk about later in the podcast. Um, because this, you know, it was brought out that I can't believe we she did this right after church. I agree, by the way. You know, the church here is supposed to be unified and such. And hopefully you come out of church with a spiritual experience, which I have. Um, so do you think that there was that in this woman's anger? Oh, very possibly. Now, people are people that have different opinions. They're formulated by different experiences and their own background. And whether she's taking out her anger on this uh, great-great-grandfather of mine, Greenberry Whitehead, uh, who became blind after he had, you know, gone off to the war and then returned to Mississippi, or uh, whether she was angry at the entire situation of why did we have to go to war? Why did we have to suffer and survive? That's just, you know, a matter of opinion. I don't know. Yeah. One thing I found interesting, and I want to bring this up at the beginning of the book, you talked about how I get, yeah, your mother was playing in the dirt and this was after church, and this was before they were going to go to the Pickards, the new family that they were introduced to once they moved to Lauderdale County. And your mother said, or your great-grandmother really profusely apologized to this new friend that she'd met, saying, we're all cold and all that. Were people particularly Southern women, more proper. The reason I bring this up is because I've been to the South. I'll never forget, I was mad at the fact that I lost my key and I went to go get a new key from the place where I was staying. And the first words out of my mouth when I was looking for something was, oh, hell. And this older lady, she was probably in her 60s. This is back in 2000, uh, 2004. Um. I want to say September, August, September, October, 2004. Oh, did I get the third degree from saying the word hell? Let me tell you, she lectured me like my mom would have lectured me as a kid. And, you know, I was uh, 24 years old at the time. If I would have said that to another Southern woman who was 24 or possibly younger, maybe even a little bit older, I wouldn't have heard a peep about profanity. Uh, were women not supposed to swear and act real proper back then? And when did all that stop? Well, there again, I think it depends on the individuals in the family. Yes, people were more proper, uh, not just in the South, but in other areas in the world. And I think as we uh, move along through time, we become a little more lax uh, about uh, being proper. You know, you look at different cultures, and the South certainly has a culture that's different than the West has a certain culture, or uh, China, or Germany. So I think we need to take everything into account of what the culture was and the time period. So I can certainly understand that, that there would be a woman who would be critical of your comment but at the same time, there would have been 60-year-old women who would not have said anything. I think it was just, in this case, both an individual and the culture and time period that she grew up in. Oh, well, yeah, I just bring that up because, A, 
it seems like there was this unspoken rule in the South when I was there. Older men could swear, but not older women. And I'm basing it too often. I seem to have read a book that kind of said the same thing. And then months later, I was expected to find an address on my own. Now, this is not impossible as a blind person. All you do is learn the grid system. Somebody takes you around and says, this is this address, this is this. And you kind of start calculating in your mind, oh, that means the even numbers on this side of the street. That means the odd numbers on this side of the street. Here's how the grid system works. And if, uh, let's say, the number starts with the, let's say the address starts with the number eight. Oh, well, then you have to go to this block. It's not too hard to do. Uh, I, I thought it would be impossible, but it's not. But anyway, I tried to find an address. Needless to say, that address did not exist. While I was trying to find it, months later, I asked somebody, and she couldn't find the address. An older lady, and I said even a worse word than the word hell, because I was livid at this point. She says, uh, excuse me, I'm an old lady. You don't talk to me like that. So I was just wondering if this was a thing in the South with older ladies or something. Oh, to uh, a degree, yes, yes. In fact, um, even a few years ago I was there, and uh, being now in my 60s, it was very, uh, I guess, not surprising to me that a group of young men stood aside for me to, to walk into a store and get my purchase before they allowed themselves to, to re, uh, get the purchase that they were uh, looking for with, at a restaurant. So they let me go ahead of line because of my age, and I appreciated that. Was it necessary? I would have been happy to wait on them, you know, but it was very nice that they were courteous being taught that. So, yes, it's, it's, uh, it's something that was taught in the culture. Yeah. Uh, well, do you think that, uh, well, we kind of answered that. Well, how much uh, apprehension did your father, did uh, your great grandfather have about going to war? And do you think the second, do you think he went back the second time because he was bound to determine to defeat the North and stand up for the South? You know, there's many things that played into that. They did get some money for serving, and this was one way they could make war money to send home, uh, just like our, you know, military will send money home for their combat pay for their their family. So that was part of it. Uh, part of it was he wanted to be part of the other men in the community. He did believe in South, you know, the rights of the states. Uh, so I think that's all part of it. Of course, you get caught up in the, uh, feeling of what's going on at the time. Everyone thought North and South, it was going to be a short war. Yeah. Uh, let's just, you know, kind of take care of this. We belong to Billings, Montana. Let's take care of Billings versus, you know, another place in the country. So they were def defending their homeland. And, um, so. Like anyone else, he was just caught up in the momentum of the moment. When do you think, I know you're not an expert on the war, but based on your research, when do you think people in the South felt defeated? Because there seemed to be some sense in your book that people were feeling defeated before the war was over. When do you think that came to realization? 
Well, I think partway through the war, um, if they were logical and could see the signs, they realized they didn't have the economic backing of other countries to help them. They didn't have the factories and the resources. All they had was pride and cotton. Uh, So I think they saw it, especially when they got invaded, you know, when there were raids on their community farms and uh, burnings of courthouses, they they took notice that they were starting to lose the war when they had to retreat and retreat and retreat. But at the same time, there were some advances and some victories that gave them hope. So Absolutely. I think there again, it was an individual um, comprehension that people would hold out to the end with the belief that there was victory at the end. But by and large, I think uh the common people began to feel that we're having to survive. Our men are gone. We're having to plant and harvest on our own, rear our children alone. Uh, We're getting notice that my brothers, my husband are not coming home. Are they coming home addicted to heroin uh, because their limbs have been amputated and now they've got, uh, mental issues. So we are not happy with this condition. We're feeling defeated already. But I'm sure some of that was happening on the North too. Uh, So do you continue what you've started? Yes. Uh, Are you feeling like you're struggling and it's a survival mode? Yes. And this helps tell the story of the common man. I think this book does in what was happening to families, not happening to the soldier, what was happening to the mothers, the wives, the children at home. Yeah. Now, uh, speaking of families, do you think uh, John, I guess John would have been what your great uncle, do you think that he matured quite a bit since uh, your dad was off at, or your great grandfather was off at war? Uh, Do you think your Brother, or your uh, great uncle John matured quite a bit? Oh, out of necessity, yes. I mean, the care of the land, of the animals, of the harvest and the planting, it basically fell to him as a teenager to make sure that that was taken care of along with his mother. So, yes, he matured. Now, uh, one of the things, I want to go back to a question I asked earlier. One of the things uh, that I asked about uh, what kept your family's spirits up, I would imagine having a new baby when your great-grandfather was off at war really helped, kept the spirits up. In the book, you wrote it as though, you know, sometimes we've had moments like this. Oh, I don't give a crap about what's going on in the world right now. I'm happy because I got this job and I'm moving this day. You can tell me any bad news in the wa- in the world right now. I don't give a crap. Was that kind of how your family felt at the moment when the baby was born? You made it seem that way. Because we've all had oh, moments I like think, that. I think uh, new life will give hope to everyone. At least that is my belief and my desire. And so it offset uh, the issues that they had of growing poorer, uh, having to deal without support from husband who was off to war. So yes, uh, children are a delight and, um, certainly, uh, 
uh, a hope for the future. And that's what I tried to emphasize was they were hopeful for this child to grow up into a better world, even though it was difficult now. It brought uh, light and hope and uh, comfort to them to have a new child come to their family. Now, in the book, you talked about a slave named Daniel who was, he escaped the Johnsons, and I think it was William who found him, wasn't it? And put him in the barn. What made him scared and escape, do you think? Any idea? Well, there was a raid on the town of Meridian where um, these people were all living. And he was a slave of someone named James Dell. And he left James because he was afraid that, and this was rumor that he had heard, that the Yankees would abuse the blacks. And so he was afraid that if he had stayed and not tried to leave, it wasn't so much leave his master, but leave why he felt was danger and hide in the woods, he would have never left. Uh, there again, um, you know, that was his personal decision. And I'm sure there's other people, you know, people vote with their feet. They move, they pick up and walk away from bad situations. You know, they, they either fight or they flee. And that was what he did. He fled. Yeah. What he thought would be, you know, a bad situation. He definitely made a smart decision to not go north, though, didn't he? According to what I've read, that would have been, I don't even know if he would have made it, do you, based on the war and all I don't think he would have made it, no. I think he knew who his friends were in the community, uh, where was the safest place to hide out in the woods, and he lit on this family that he knew were good, honest, uh, not prejudiced people. And he relied on their goodness. And so he, he survived through the war that way. Now, do you think, uh, because we've heard in history books for one reason or another, that may be truth, uh, we've heard that most slave owners treated their slaves poorly. Do you think that that's true? Or do you think most of the slaves were treated fairly decently? What's your take? Because I don't there's know argument information oh, uh, to say, but... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I don't have the knowledge that you can say a majority uh, were uh, abusive or that a majority were kind. I think it there again depended on the slave owner and the people that they associated with. So I was very blessed to have a heritage of uh, people who either didn't own slaves because they couldn't afford them and worked well with other members, be it Native American, white, or uh, black individuals. Or if they could own a slave, they wouldn't own a slave. So they wouldn't be accused of being abusive and they would hire poor whites to farm their land. So I have a good heritage. And this is one reason why I wanted my children to know our heritage was to know that um, there are good, honest people in all walks of life and to be grateful for their heritage. Yeah, so, and... I can't... I, oh, go ahead. 
I was going to say, I, I can't really answer your question. Was there a majority, you know, kind or not kind? I don't know. Well, there's a certain group of people who will swear up and down that African-Americans are better off as slaves. And you, you've heard this argument before, off and on. And then you hear the other side, no, look at what African-Americans are doing. I'm not saying I agree one way or the other, but it does bring the question out, just how poorly were most slaves being treated or was this exaggerated? Obviously, there were slaves being treated poorly. That's a fact. Um, Whether it was hyperventilated, I have no idea. Uh, how do you think the war united people, though? We were talking about divided, and you kind of answered this, but if you want to go into it further, how do you think it united the country? By the end of the war, everyone had suffered. Everyone wanted the end of the war. And again, legally, the laws united the country. Commerce could continue through the United States. Um, I appreciate that our country has been united. I appreciate the fact that each state has its own entity, but I also appreciate that uh, we have a nation. And so how we united people, I'm not sure if it took, you know, just an instant uh, clarification that we were united, but I think through the years, I'm grateful that we have become more united and less prejudiced and more supportive of each other. Yeah. Now, do you think uh, racism was worse after the Civil War, or do you think it was the same in the South? Because in the book, you kind of made it sound like it was, uh, yeah, in your book, you made it sound like it might have been actually a little bit worse. I think it was a little bit worse, but there again, it's my opinion. And again, I'm not an expert on these matters. Uh, the reason why I wrote the book was to tell the story of the genealogical and historical facts that pertain to my family. And I thought it was such an interesting story. I wanted to share it with, with others. So the others will say, I have a family story that I want to share too. Yeah. Whatever that may be, which may be totally different than the one that I've related. Yeah. Now, what was it that uh, one of your great uncles had against uh, John had against William? It seems like I couldn't tell. It seems like half of it was sarcastic. This is when uh, your mother, Martha, or yeah, I think it was your grandmother was dating William and you know, William, I guess, was kind of acting. He was, I keep forgetting, he was about four years younger, so probably being a typical kid, but it seems like as time went on, he was more serious that he had reservations about William. Uh, why do you think that was? I think in part because he could see, <laughs> you could see the, um, the clan coming into being, the KKK. He could see that there was a division in his people that perhaps wasn't as strong that had been there. And I'm talking about the common man, Uh the poor farmers. And I think he was trying to, one, protect his sister from a man who was taking the side of 
standing against um, this new wave that was coming down from the north, the scallywags, and the I think he was afraid. And I, the bottom line is this man John, this uncle, he wasn't quite sure where he was going to be standing. What side of the fence he was going to be standing on? He was growing up, and like all teenagers, people have to come to a decision of where they're going to make a stand and who they're going to stand with. At the end, he stands with his family um, and ends up trying to protect his family at, at the, the end of the story. So I yeah. think it was just a matter of showing that this boy was just a teenager growing up and trying to figure out life for himself. I remember uh, being a mixed up teenager to some degree, listening to certain voices other than my parents. I think we all go through stages like that in life. Uh, how hard was it, do you think, for your great-grandfather to adjust from being home from the war? I would imagine that'd be a very difficult transition. You kind of alluded to it in your book. Yes, and I wanted to bring this out in that I feel a lot of people coming back from military service in a combat zone or prisoner of war camp are not quite the same. Their experience has certainly changed them. The experience of a family being alone has changed the life for the children. I wanted to bring that out as just being a natural experience that um, happens. You can't just walk back through the door. You can't be a child and leave home and then uh, come back and have the same relationship with your parents. So I think it was important that this book addressed that there was a change in John, there was a change in the wife, uh, the daughter Mary and Martha, and also, you know, uh, Greenberry, who was the man that went off to war and came back again. He had to deal with being ostracized and the anger and not the support that he felt from the community. He was grateful for the support that he had from his parents and his, his wife and his children when he came back. He certainly had seen things and experienced things that other people hadn't. Uh, there was a situation where the father came to him, the father of a man who died of smallpox in Camp Douglas, the PO, W camp in Chicago, came to him and they discussed the conditions of that POW camp. And he was able to voice something there that he may not have voiced, you know, to his children. Yeah. In the book, you mentioned uh, Mrs. Pickard not wanting to celebrate her birthday. Do you think that was because, because I would imagine I might go through this. You know, if I, maybe I wouldn't have a relative or brother, wife or whatever, in your case, a husband in war, maybe. But what if I had a, sibling that I was really close to in solitary confinement or something like that? Or what if uh, one of my best friends was uh, was in solitary confinement or something to that effect? What uh, Do you think uh, Miss Pickard, Mrs. Pickard felt guilty about celebrating her birthday because she wanted to remember those in the war? Because I, I could see that, like I said, if I had friends or relatives I was close to in similar circumstances. Yeah, these two friends, these two women, uh, Catherine, Martha's mother, was against any celebration of any kind, and it was Mrs. Pickard 
whose birthday was being celebrated, who was, yes, let's go ahead and move on with life. The children need something to feel good about and celebrate and be happy about. Life continues. But yes, yes, there definitely is, I'm sure, a thought that, no, we need to be respectful. Things are grim. Let's let's not celebrate. Um, so what's your attitude? Uh, bitter or better? Do you move on with life and make it better, or do you remain bitter? So that again, I wanted to bring out in the book that it's just you know kind of human nature of how people would think. So yeah. How do you think uh, your great grandmother felt when William came home? Because there obviously was a sense that your mother or your grandmother, I guess Martha, um, had feelings for William. And uh, how do you think uh, your great grandmother felt when William came home from the war? About or not, or when William came home? Oh, I'm sure that she probably, like anyone else, was grateful that he was safe, been able to come home, uh, and probably wished that her own husband was able to come home too. Uh, so I'm sure she had mixed feelings. But I don't think that she regretted this, the support that she gave to her daughter when um, her future son-in-law came home. I think she was very happy that someone had survived the war. Now, you mentioned that, uh, obviously, for many for obvious reasons, uh, your great-grandfather had mixed feelings about joining with the voluntary, with the, the volunteers, and rightfully so. Do you think, though, your grand, your great grandfather, felt defeated when he came home from the war? Why did the South not win? Why did I do such a thing, like joining the Volunteers? Looking back, do you think he felt defeated? I don't think he felt terribly defeated. I think he did what he felt was the correct thing to do at the time. I'm sure that he was saddened that he had to suffer through being a prisoner of war twice, that his fellow men had to suffer. And I'm sure that he felt just terribly uh, uh, anguish at being ostracized when he felt that he was just trying to survive for his family. I don't think he himself thought himself a traitor. I think okay. He well, I was just like wondering he, if maybe he felt defeated because the South lost and... He went there to no, win. No, I don't, I don't think personally he felt defeated. Uh, I think he was ready to move on and hope. And I, I brought this out in the, I think, last chapter or two. Uh, let's move on. We want to move on and have something better for our children than we have for ourselves. So if he had felt saddened about the defeat, it didn't stay with him. He wanted to make life better. Yeah. Well, um, is there any other things that you want to mention about this book? Have I covered everything? Is there anything else you want to talk about? Well, the only other things that I think uh, that I would like the listeners to be impressed about is that they each have a family story that can be shared that we're all human 
we all make mistakes. We all have our glories. And that the relationship that we can develop with our immediate family and our ancestors is by doing the research and writing things down. Uh, this family were able to write journals, write letters, so that we have information about them. And uh, I think that is critical for our posterity, even more so perhaps for ourselves. If we write something down, we get to know who we are. And I think that's terribly important. So if I was to uh, encourage anyone by writing this book, and this is one of the reasons I wrote this book, Miss Mary's Cross, was so that others would be able to share with their posterity, with themselves, what their heritage is, and come to understand uh, their place. In, oh, I was going to... Uh, so. Okay, I was going to ask a couple more questions. Um, how big of a deal was dancing back then? Because it sounds like uh, you had a Christmas dance, you had a dance for a birthday. I think you even had a dance when uh, your great-grandfather come, came home, didn't, didn't they? It, was dancing a big deal back then? Uh, in, in the South, yes. There was clogging. Clogging still happens. Really? Um, I don't even know what clogging yes. is. I know it's a type of dance, but I don't even know how to do it. Well, there's not many groups left, but it's an expression. What did they do for entertainment 150 years ago? They told stories. They danced. They played simple instruments. They sang. And that was their entertainment. That was the way they shared their life together, their joys and their fears. And they talked about their heritage to their children to be passed on through the generations. So I alluded to in the book of uh, going to the cemetery for spring cleanup, where they clean the cemetery. And this was common even a few years ago. And parents and grandparents would take the young children from grave to grave and tell them, your Aunt Susan is buried here, and this is what I know about her. And uh, that's how they, they uh, you know, continued their heritage. Okay. Now, um, what, I guess, legend has it, do you think your father went, or your great-grandfather went blind because of a, the fever that he caught while he was uh, in Fort Laramie fixing the telegraph? the telegraph line, which, by the way, he was treated very inhumanely there. Well, you know, the interesting thing about this is that family legend has that he went blind because of harsh conditions in the West when he was in the Dakota Territory, Fort Laramie. But we don't really know. It's just the legend. Did he have cataracts? Did he have a fever? I don't know. So did he go blind? Yes, he went blind. And he had to deal with, and his family had to deal with blindness. So, no, we don't know. And I think that's true of a lot of uh, family stories and legends. We may not know all the details, but um, find out as much detail as we can to kind of understand who our family is and, and what these individuals were like and what they went through. So. 
Yeah. Now, real quick, at the end of your book, then I'll ask a couple, uh, one more question that I ask almost everybody that comes here on the podcast. Um, in the book, you mentioned that there was a big riot in Mississippi. And in the notes you mentioned, I believe the African Americans incited. Tell us more about that. Was that out of anger or what? I, I know you didn't want to be asked much about the Civil War, but it, it was mentioned here in your book, though. Well, this particular um, riot after the Civil War started because a few whites had been abusive to some black individuals. And the black individuals wanted to stand up for what they felt was their right and their safety. And they went to the constable and asked for uh, some protection. He took this matter to the judge. There was some heated debate at, in the court. Uh, one of the white individuals uh, let out some bullets. Uh, and and uh, I don't know if anyone was killed at the time. But, of course, the, the meeting or uh, the court was adjourned, and uh, one thing led to another. I think 13 blacks were killed. There was rioting. There was burning in the city until tempers flared down. So it was, there again, just a handful of men uh, fighting against each other. Uh, it's not the majority that caused the problem. It was just a handful of people that had this... Uh, Unrest, but I thought it was worthy of mentioning in the book that there was yes unrest, and that uh, what people can do to each other and the attitudes people can have during a mob situation. So again, I thought it was worth mentioning. Yeah, and um, um, now your book is not going to be published. Your book is not published yet, correct or is it? I oh yeah, uh, yes, your book is published. Where do you get it? The book is available uh, on a print-on-demand only uh, situation. It is available from my publisher, which is Book Walker. It's also available at uh, Barnes & Noble and Amazon and Walmart. And at Amazon, a Book Walker, and um, it's available as an e-book as well. So that gives some options to our is it on a, Is it on the Kindle? It is. Okay. But it, you don't have it in audio yet? No. No, I'm hoping to do that in the near future. Okay. Well, if uh, you can get it on a Kindle, then uh, a blind person can read it because they can, if they have an iPhone, they can hook up the uh, Kindle to their uh, Braille display to the iPhone Kindle app, or the, the Kindle itself works pretty well with uh, for blind people. So that's good to know. Um, now, a couple of questions I want to ask that I ask everybody here, and this is an LDS Life podcast, so don't give me flack about talking about the LDS religion here, because this is the LDS Life podcast. So you are LDS. Uh, your grandmother is a convert, correct? Yes, my mother's mother was a convert. In oh, your great-grandmother, Okay. My mother as well was a convert. They joined oh, okay. within a few years of each other. Oh, okay. And uh, what made them convert? This should be an interesting story. 
Uh, my mother had a best friend who was LDS and befriended her, and they attended church socials together. So that when she was an older teenager, about 18, she became interested in the doctrines of the church. A missionary from, sister missionary from Canada taught her the gospel, which she, you know, readily accepted. Uh, On my father's side, his parents were converts. He was raised in the church in Salt Lake. My father's father is Swiss, joined the church in Switzerland as a teenager. My father's mother was Dutch, joined the church in the Netherlands, and they immigrated to Salt Lake where they met and had their family. Interesting. It's interesting that uh, your mother had friends in the South that were LDS. Certainly weren't very many of us back then, still isn't today. Uh, So that's interesting. And uh, what is your favorite part about being LDS? My favorite part, and I don't know if this is particularly just because of the LDS religion, because I feel like the spirit of Christ can be with all of us, no matter what culture, religion we are, our conscience will help us know right from wrong. But of all things, I appreciate the gift of the Holy Ghost that I received at baptism and the blessings of the priesthood and ordinances that are associated with the priesthood. So I think that's what I appreciate the most about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is to have the opportunity of priesthood ordinances and the gift of the Holy Ghost to guide our direction in our lives. All right. Well, um, anything else you want to add to this podcast before we say goodbye? I want to thank you, Kevin, for an opportunity to express uh, my thoughts and um, be able to say something about this book, which I think will be a benefit to not only to adults, but to youth. I think it tells more a true story of what happened to families in the South during the war between the states or the Civil War. So I appreciate the opportunity to having been able to speak with you today. All right. Well, we will see you next week, folks. Goodbye.